Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Becoming Multiplanetary. I'm Rich LB, one of your co-hosts for Becoming Multiplanetary, and I'd like to introduce my co-host, Kage. Kage, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Hello, everyone. I am Kage, also one of the co-hosts of Becoming Multiplanetary, and this is the second part of a two-parter of a mega-series about rovers on Mars. Um, in this uh, in this episode, we'll be talking about the Opportunity Rover. In the previous episode, we talked about the Spirit Rover. And we went into um, uh, a few breakdowns about Spirit, as well as uh, some details about both rovers, including some backstory about uh, why the uh, Mars Exploration Rover uh, mission was uh, put together, how it's part of the larger Mars Exploration Program, uh, how Spirit and Opportunity got their names, uh, why Mars, and also some information about the uh, Mars Exploration Rover, uh, uh, twin rovers rather, um, including where they uh, where they landed, where they um, or, or what their uh, mission objectives were, some specifications about the rovers, as well as uh, how they landed. Um, so today we'll be going into uh, some details about Opportunity specifically, but also uh, some more information about both rovers since they were uh, built identical to each other, including the instrumentation, uh, their drivetrain, computer systems, and uh, power systems. So to begin, um, let's actually go ahead and kick this off with a video from NASA, which uh, is from... I'm not exactly sure when that's from. It encapsulates the story of both Spirit and Opportunity as well. So not only is it going to be a nice little recap for you guys, for what we talked about last time in the episode uh, concerning Spirit, but it's also going to go over some of the stuff we are going to be going to go going over today in the episode as well. So it's it's going to be a nice recap and a preview of what we're going to be going over. Yeah, and this one comes from January 9th, 2009 from NASA. So, shall we go over and head see that video now? Green board, green board, green board. Five, four, three, two, one. Engine start and liftoff of the Delta II rocket carrying the spirit from Earth to planet Mars. Three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity chance to explore and unlock the secrets of our neighboring planet. The two landing sites are very different, and we've used the two vehicles very differently since we arrived there.
opportunities land in site is smooth and flat. You can drive for miles. It's all very easy. The Spirit's landing site is very rugged, very rocky. Moving around is much more difficult. A Spirit's landing site is at a higher latitude, so the winters are much more severe. And so coaxing that vehicle through a cold, uh, dark Martian winter is, is, is a much tougher job than it is for opportunity. Now they are well named. Opportunity really has been incredibly opportunistic and lucky. It basically found water from its lander. It's been able to do all kinds of, of things because it was lucky. Like being able to drive into these craters. Uh, it found its own heat shield and we were able to examine for the first time a heat shield that was used on another planet because it happened to land nearby. Spirit really has had to have a lot of spirit to, to keep going. It's been the little rover that could in a way. It's had to work very hard for all of its discoveries. These are phenomenal vehicles, uh, so well engineered and designed and built. Uh, that they've been able to last, but they've been able to do this very challenging, dangerous uh, exploration of the surface. I mean, they are very much intrepid explorers. You know, our proxies on the surface of Mars, um, you know, going forth to explore this hostile and alien world. Mars is a nasty place. And one of the things that Mars does is every so often blows up into a global dust storm. Our third summer on Mars, it happened. Storm went global, you know, blocked out the sky. If you were sitting at the surface of Mars where, where opportunity was, the amount of direct sunlight hitting the solar panels was less than 1% of what it would be with a clear atmosphere. You could barely tell where the sun was in the sky. This is a very scary thing if you're a solar-powered vehicle, obviously. And uh, yeah, it was, it was this, kind of helpless feeling. You're sitting there and Mars is doing what it does and it's, you know, you sit there feeling like the planet's trying to kill our rovers. And we had this very challenging job of managing this, this tiny amount of power that we had on board the vehicle. The bad wheel on Spirit has been both a curse and, as it turns out, a blessing. Uh, the curse part is obvious. It's very hard to drive that vehicle now. Spirit's in some pretty tough terrain anyway, and now you're dragging this dead wheel through the dirt. Uh, you know, 10 meters is a really good day for Spirit these days. But it's had a wonderful silver lining. These trenches that she, that she was uh, uh, digging that just sort of naturally happened by dragging a wheel through the dirt um, had these bright patches at the bottom. Some of those patches turned out to have a high, very high, like 90% silica content. And the way you get a high 90% silica content is lots of water activity. So by dragging Spirit's broken wheel around, she actually turned up some of the best evidence we found uh, of water on either vehicle so far on Mars. Getting the Victoria was great. I mean, it was 21 months of trudging endlessly across these plains and hardly seeing the scenery change at all. And then one day we're right at the, uh, at the rim of it and there's just this spectacular scenery, this fabulous geology laid out in front of us. And yeah, the combination of just what a glorious view it was, plus so much effort that went into getting there, pulling up to the rim of Victoria was to me one of the really special moments in the whole mission. How do I feel about the fact that it's gone on for five years? Exhausted. <laughs> I mean, really tired. Uh, you know, I thought we were going to get maybe six months out of these things. 
I never thought we'd get five years. I was one of the optimists that felt the rovers would survive the first winter and that we would have an extended mission. But I never thought they would last through three Martian winters and continue to explore for five years. I never in my wildest imagination believed it was gonna go on for five years and give me this opportunity to see so much of Mars and for so long and to learn so much about, not only about the vehicles, but about the science of Mars and about you know, the, the area in which they landed and to just have this opportunity that, that I thought was gonna be a terrific little kind of short honeymoon, just kind of go on and on and on and on and on and, and, just, and just get better all the time. We're gonna push these rovers as hard as we can for as long as we can. You know, as long as they keep on moving, as long as they keep making discoveries, it is our responsibility to push these vehicles until they drop. The rovers have made Mars familiar to us. You know, prior to their landing, it was this mysterious place. And even though we had had successful orbiting missions, we didn't have a human perspective on Mars. It was always a very distant perspective. The rovers have given us that human perspective, and now it is familiar to us. Mars is such a complicated place, and these are such capable vehicles, that there will never come a time when we're done. Regardless of whether the, when this mission ends, whether it's tomorrow or five years from now, there's always going to be some wonderful, tantalizing thing just beyond our reach that we didn't quite get to. When our children and grandchildren bring home that science book where it says, you know, there is evidence of liquid water on Mars, to know that you helped build and operate um, and, and direct the rover to that spot, uh, yeah, that, that's very rewarding. We're tired, but there's just nothing more fun than getting up in the morning and going to work and, you know, seeing something nobody's ever seen before and then deciding, you know, all of us sit down together today on this planet to decide what's going to happen tomorrow on that planet. I mean, that's fun. Wow, that was a really interesting. I love these videos that NASA make. They're really great. The thing that I uh, kind of found clever was how uh, Scott Maxwell, the rover driver, um, he, uh, I don't know if he realized that he, he did it uh, and it was uh, a bit of a pun or if it was just um, opportunistic, but he kept saying, uh, he, he was saying twice about uh, the uh, broken wheel and, uh, or rather about uh, the, uh, uh, the, the five-year uh, duration of its mission uh, that it kept giving him an opportunity and that this is a great opportunity it's like ha 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 ha, ha. see what, see he, did what there? he did there yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really good so um there was a lot of science that uh both of the rovers did and uh rich why don't you walk us through some of the instrumentation that was used uh to perform this science and and bear in mind uh, from the previous episode in Spirit, we talked about how the uh, ro both rovers carried about 5 kilograms or 11 pounds of instruments, and that's Earth weight. On Mars, it was only about 2 kilograms or 4 pounds. Uh, so really a light amount of instruments, but they packed a lot of uh, scientific ability in those. Rich, you want to walk us through those? Sure, yeah, no problem. So on 
If you imagine the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, uh, you know the vertical mast cam, where its head is? So on that 1.5 meter tall assembly, there are three instruments, right? So you have the panoramic cameras, which were two cameras with color filter wheels for determining the texture, color, and mineralogy and structure of the local terrain. So you can see like uh, like these sort of calibration things. You see pictures of them from the recent Perseverance mission as well. They look like little sundials kind of with different colors. Um, Then we had the navigation cameras, navcams, which were two cameras that had a larger field of view. So if you imagine like a when you're at home and you, you have your mobile phone, you can take a panorama where you can just keep going around. So yeah, that's just like a, a larger field of view, but lower monochromatic resolution, and it was used for navigation and driving. And then the periscope assembly for the miniature thermal emission spectrometer, that's a mouthful, which identified rocks and soils suitable for closer examination and was used to determine the processes that formed them. So there were also, actually, uh, for the rest of the instruments as well, there were also four additional monochromatic hazard cameras uh, mounted on the rover bodies themselves. So you had two in the front and two behind. So these are lower down on the rover's body so they can get a, a sort of lower look at the ground as it goes forward so you can determine if there's any hazards coming up. Also if there's any hazards behind because obviously the terrain on Mars, if there's a lot of wind, it may not necessarily always be static. Something might roll in behind you. So it's good to have these hazcams on the back too, especially when you're backing it up. Yeah, they, they didn't always drive forward. Uh, a matter of fact, there was a good period of time with uh, Spirit that uh, because it's broken front wheel, it was uh, driving in reverse. So uh, those those hazcams, uh, especially on the on the rear side, uh, really really became useful at that point. Yeah, for sure. And then the rovers also had instrument deployment device, also called the rover arm, which held all the following instruments, just in the arm. We have a Merspower spectrometer called MIMOS-2, used for close-up investigations of the mineralogy of iron-bearing rocks and soils. We have the Alpha Particle X-ray spectrometer, used for close-up analysis of the abundances of elements that makes up rocks and soils. The microscopic imager, used for obtaining the close-up high-resolution images of rocks and soils. And then the rock abrasion tool, used for removing dusty and weathered rock surfaces and exposing fresh material for examination by the instruments on board. And they also had several magnets as well, used for collecting magnetic dust particles, which is interesting. I don't know if you realised recently, there seems to be a lot of magnet fishing catching around. It seems to be going, it's like a fad, just going with a magnet and reeling it along a river, just catching particles and stuff. But yeah, Lo and behold, they had the same thing. Those particles were then analysed by the Merspower spectrometer and X-ray spectrometer to help determine the ratio of magnetic particles to non-magnetic particles and the composition of any magnetic materials... Uh, materials? Sorry, minerals. In the airborne dust and rocks that have been ground by the rock abrasion tool. Yeah. And speaking of the rock abrasion tool... Uh, there is also, this is an interesting bit of uh, trivia for uh, especially people from the United States, that there were um, pieces of scrap aluminum that were recovered from the World Trade Center after the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attack, and they were turned into a protective shield 
uh, that was placed on the rock abrasion tools on both Spirit and Opportunity. The Mars Exploration Rover team revealed this in 2011 as what they called a, quote, quiet tribute. Um, that's really cool, actually. So should we talk a little bit about the drivetrain of these things? Absolutely. Go for it. All right. So the rovers use a six-wheel drivetrain design that was first used on Sojourner, and we'll come back to Sojourner in a later episode. Uh, but it was called a rocker bogey system. Now, this is the little sort of legs that dangle down on the rovers when they engage on the floor. And this consists of a main rocker arm attached to the rover chassis on a pivot point with a wheel at the front of the rocker and a bogey on the back of the rocker, which has two additional wheels on either end of the bogey. A bogey is the name for the dual wheel assembly you often see on trains, which is basically just a, sh a sub-chassis that carries a wheel set. This rocker bogey system gave the ability to keep the rovers stable at up to 45 degree of tilt in any direction, um, which is pretty impressive when you think about it. It's pretty much like, what? So here's, here's your 90 degrees, you know, 45 degrees, and it'll still stay stable. <laughs> this is pretty impressive. And in any direction, too. <clears throat> Although, having said that, to provide safety margins, NASA always kept this under 30 degrees. Uh, Spirit and Opportunity were the first rovers to use a rear bogey system, whereas their predecessor Sojourner used a front bogey system. In order to provide tight maneuvering capabilities, both the front and rear wheels could steer, which allowed both rovers to spin in place if needed. <clears throat> the rocker bogey used on Spirit and Opportunity were highly successful, and are still used to this day on both Curiosity and Percy. While the rovers both had a top speed of uh, 50 millimeters per second or 2 inches per second on flat hard ground, they averaged only about 10 millimeters a second due to the hazard avoidance system causing them to stop every 10 seconds to observe the terrain for 20 seconds and then calculate the next few centimeters of travel. And that actually segues nicely right into the computer system, Kage. Absolutely, thank you. So, uh, and also the uh, uh, observation of the terrain and calculation of its next uh, uh, place to travel to is where those hascams in the front and the back uh, really came into play. So, in order to do these calculations, the computer system on board uh, Spirit and Opportunity used the RAD 6000 processor which was designed by IBM and manufactured by BAE Systems uh, based on the IBM RS6000 and PowerPC601 processors. These were actually processors that later, uh, or, or were the uh, predecessor for what's uh, started to, what you would start to see in uh, Apple Macintosh computers uh, using the PowerPC design. Interesting little factoid about that, that the uh, processors that were used in uh, Power Max uh, from the early 2000s, those were actually direct, um, th those, those were the consumer version of the processors that are today in both the Curiosity and the Perseverance rovers. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, so, as of 2008, there are over 200 RAD 6000 processors in space on a variety of NASA Department of Defense and commercial spacecraft, which includes Spirit and Opportunity rovers, uh, as well as the Mars Polar Lander, uh, the Mars Climate Orbiter, the Mars Odyssey Orbiter, and many, many others. 
it's uh, really a robust processor, and uh, that's because it's designed to be extremely uh, radiation-hardened. So um, it's able to have a very quick recovery to any kind of radio radioactive uh, interference or cosmic rays and so forth. Um, it also helps that the processor runs the VxWorks multitasking operating system, which has a lot of error correction built into it, including also the uh, memory on board, uh, which is error correction uh, memory. And that processor runs at a whopping 20 megahertz, uh, which is just uh, blazing fast. It's It doesn't really sound that fast, uh, but you have to bear in mind that um, in order to have the kind of uh, tolerances that are needed to withstand the... Uh, uh, the, the background radiation that happens on uh, Mars and also in outer space where there's no uh, uh, magnetic, uh, no, no magnetosphere to protect it, uh, protect those uh, processors from uh, solar rays and so forth, that uh, nowadays we talk about like uh, 10 or 7 or 5 nanometer processes in, uh, in, in processors. And for these, they're actually much, much larger. I'm not exactly sure, but I think they're uh, somewhere closer to like the uh, 40 or 50 nanometer size. Um, and that's really because the smaller you get with those, uh, with packing uh, transistors in a processor, the higher the likelihood is that you can actually have um, electrons jumping those, uh, uh, those uh, FET gates, uh, be they, um, I think they're now in GAA FET, uh, but... Um, I forget what the uh, current uh, uh, FET gates are that they're using. Um, but you can actually have uh, basically a form of quantum tunneling where the electrons can jump through and cause uh, miscalculations. And so in order to prevent that from happening, they go for uh, much bulkier transistors, uh, transistors in these processors, um, which give them uh, greater room for uh, a greater margin for error. Uh, so when you have a much larger processor like that, you also don't have the ability to go very fast with them. So 20 megahertz, good enough for Mars. <laughs> Although, that being said, the uh, Curiosity and Perseverance rovers uh, are actually an order of magnitude higher. Um, they're at uh, 200 megahertz, but they're running the RAD 750 uh, processors. So uh, they made just a little bit of some improvements uh, when it came to curiosity and perseverance. But going back to uh, Spirit and Opportunity, they also ran 128 megabytes of RAM. That's a whole a whole lot there. 256 megabytes of flash memory and 3 megabytes of electronically erasable programmable read-only memory, or EEPROM, which is non-volatile memory. And we covered this in the previous Spirit video that... The memory on Spirit uh, especially had a lot of issues over time. And uh, that actually started from the very moment that it landed. Uh, they had to reformat its flash memory, uh, do some uh, various uh, corrections and deletions of, of things. And they did the same to Opportunity while it was still en route to Mars. Um, and that resolved its issues and was able to continue. Uh, they were uh, both able to continue their missions. Um, and uh, it also as covered in the previous uh, uh, episode on the 1,800th Martian day, or, or Sol, as it's called, um, Spirit really began to have some issues with its memory where uh, it confirmed it received instructions, but 
it actually never did do anything with them, and it also didn't write anything to its memory. So it was uh, supposed to perform some scientific observations and never wrote that to its EEPROM. Um, so they made some uh, discoveries after uh, a little bit of investigation that it appeared that damage was beginning to build up from cosmic uh, radiation. Uh, Spirit really had a rough journey, but uh, Curiosity uh, kept going. I'm sorry, uh, Opportunity uh, kept going for quite a long time. And uh, part of that was because of the power systems that were on board, which, as was mentioned in the first video that we just watched, they didn't expect them to last that long, only planning for 90 days. Uh, but in fact, for Spirit, <laughs> it went for about six years. And for Opportunity, it went for around 15 years. So, Rich, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about the power systems that were on board? Absolutely. So, Spirit and Opportunity were both powered by two rechargeable lithium-ion batteries. No different than what you would get in the shop. A lot of them are powered by lithium-ion. And they weighed 7.15 kilos, or 15.8 pounds, each. And that is Earth weight. So Mars weight, they weigh about 2.7 kilos or 5.98 pounds, just shy of 6 pounds, on Mars. Now, these were recharged using triple junction solar arrays, which generated about 140 watts for up to 4 hours per Martian day, or Sol, as they're referred to. Now, about 100 watts were needed for the rovers to drive. So, moving around obviously consumes quite a lot of energy. Now, while the rovers did carry eight radioisotope heater units, uh, these were only used to keep the uh, web box heated at night, so that's the warm electronics box. And it was augmented by the electronic heaters uh, used only when necessary when the, the radioisotope heater units combined eight watts of output wasn't enough. And this is because the surface of Mars can drop to as low as negative 73 Celsius, or negative 100 Fahrenheit, and the electronics needed to stay above negative 40 Celsius, which coincidentally is also negative 40 Fahrenheit, uh, to remain operational. Now, the solar arrays actually hovered somewhere between the region of about 300 watt-hours and 900 watt-hours per day, which was far above NASA's expectations, and the windstorms kept the solar arrays relatively clean of Martian dust, which let them remain in operation for several years longer than what was originally planned. However, it was ultimately this Martian dust covering the solar arrays that led to Spirit completing its mission in 2011 and Opportunity completing its mission in 2019, and we'll hear more about these uh, little dust devils and stuff later on. Indeed. And in fact, it was because of these issues that the uh, Curiosity and Perseverance rovers were developed to use multi-mission radioisotope thermoelectric generators, or MMRTGs, as their primary power source. And uh, speaking of dust-covering opportunity solar panels, that event is what led to uh, KPCC science reporter Jacob Margolis to sum up Opportunity's final message as, quote, My battery is low, and it's getting dark. In fact, this wasn't Opportunity's final message, just a poetic paraphrasing. Opportunity's last message was a final dump of its memory, which included data indicating that it was low on power and its solar arrays and sensors could not detect or absorb much of any sunlight as a major sandstorm was rolling through 
and was ultimately what uh, led Opportunity to its final fate of being shut down on February 13th, 2019. And with that, uh, let's actually go ahead and check out a video from Jim Bridenstine, the uh, former uh, NASA administrator, where he talks about uh, spirit and uh, especially opportunity and uh, the accomplishments that uh, that rover brought until its uh, final moments. This is a celebration of so many achievements. And I'll just start by saying, you know, when this little rover landed, the objective was to have it be able to, to move 1,100 yards and survive for 90 days on Mars, 90 souls. And instead, here we are 14 years later, after 28 miles of travel, and today we get to celebrate the end of this mission. So it's, uh, it's an honor for me as the NASA administrator to come out here to this amazing facility with so many amazingly talented people to say thank you for your great work, not just for our country, but for the science that people are going to be benefiting all over the world. They're going to be benefiting from this science for years to come. Spirit and opportunity may be gone, but they leave us a legacy. And that's a legacy of a new paradigm for solar system exploration. A robotic geologist on Mars and an integrated science and engineering operations team here on Earth all set out together on a mission of discovery. They didn't know what they would find. They didn't know which direction they would go, sometimes from one day to the next. Uh, and they made it work. And they made it work longer uh, than any of us thought possible by both brilliant scientific deduction of where to go and brilliant engineering to keep the rovers alive. Confirmation of a safe landing. We're seeing it on the LCP. Opportunity hit a hole-in-one when she landed. The airbag system rolled into the small crater called Eagle Crater. And when the rover first turned on its cameras, it saw that the rim of the small crater was lined with exposed bedrock. So we took out our microscope for the first time, and we took a picture. And the surface of Mars at that location is littered with an uncountable number of little round things. That were called blueberries because they looked like blueberries in a muffin. What we discovered was that those are features that form in water, and, and they were a really definitive sign that there had been liquid water on the surface of Mars sometime in the past. You know, after we left Eagle Crater, we went to Endurance Crater, and that's the crater we drove down in. And there we did what the geologists call an in-sequence stratigraphic section, which is essentially reading the chapters of the Martian history book in reverse order. That rover became a stratigrapher. First time you had a stratigrapher on Mars. <laughs> we knew we wanted to go after endurance to Victoria. We put pedal to the metal and we started heading there, tens of kilometers away. We had to literally surf across these dunes of wind-blown material, and the rover got stuck in one of those. We had to get the rover unstuck. What we found is the, the best way to get it out is just to put it in reverse and gun it. <laughs> the rover eventually popped out. And so we changed our driving strategy. So we recognized these ripples as hazards. 
We get to this giant half-mile diameter crater, Victoria Crater, and we want to figure out, gee, how can we go into this thing? All of a sudden, we got high-rise images. We could see the rover in the image. And that was the very first image that we got from space showing one of our rovers. We spent a year scouting the edge of that crater to decide where we wanted to go in to get the best stratigraphic section. We found a place to go in and, and we drove down in and we spent uh, about a year inside Victoria Crater. The science team was really excited about the idea of driving to Endeavour Crater over 20 kilometers away. This is a long drive to do. It was going to take multiple years, but they decided to do it anyways. There were too many of these dangerous ripples in our way, and we actually had to take this circuitous route that at times took us away from the crater, only to then cut back and then approach it more directly. And then we pull up to Endeavor Crater, and all of a sudden there's all these new things to look at. When we first discovered the Homestake vein, it was this very, very bright linear feature. It turns out that it was a big gypsum vein, and we see these gypsum veins now all over. So it was our first taste of what is a really important process on Mars. We were driving to a valley, and along the way there, we realized that right about the point where we were about to get to this valley, that was when we were going to cross the Marathon Mark. So we said, well, that's cool. We're just going to name this valley after that, call it Marathon Valley. That was when we reached the distance of a marathon, 26.2 miles on another planet. We continued driving through some slopes down a little bit on the interior of the crater rim until we came back out so that we could continue on to the next valley, Perseverance Valley. Where the rover was exploring when we lost contact. We said we're going to operate this vehicle until the day where we can't, and that's exactly what we did and I'm really proud. We've set a foundation that will serve as the basis for future exploration. Yes, there we have it. Those are really some spectacular views, weren't they? Best line of that video, just stick it in reverse and gun it. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, in honor of Opportunity and its uh, incredibly long uh, mission and several extensions, let's uh, go through a few uh, key highlights over its lifetime. We won't go through everything because there are about 14 close to 15 years of uh, uh, milestones. <laughs> we'll be here all day. Um, but let's just go through um, about like uh, six or eight of them. To begin, in 2005, actually ever since Opportunity's second day on Mars, it had joint pain. Uh, so um, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Uh, the heater on its robotic arm shoulder azimuth joint, known as Joint 1, uh, was stuck in the on position, likely due to a failure during assembly or repeated testing on Earth. And because of the extreme temperature fluctuations on Mars and the need to put uh, opportunity into a deep sleep at night due to, uh, the, uh, to uh, preserve its power, they could not keep the heater on for that joint. So they actually ended up uh, shutting it off. So eventually this led to the joint one azimuth motor periodically stalling due to the constant uh, temperature uh, fluctuations, which is why from that point forward, they kept the robotic arm stowed in front of the rover instead of under its deck as designed, uh, which was to reduce the potential of it getting permanently stuck due to a failure. Additionally, in 2005, um, 
after exiting Endurance Crater in 2000 in, in January uh, around Sol 345, Opportunity was driven to examine its own discarded heat shield, as we saw in the uh, video right, just yeah. a moment ago. Yeah, and it was also around this time that it discovered a meteorite named Heat Shield Rock, since it was within proximity of the heat shield. And that actually marked the first time that a meteorite was identified on another planet. Not another planetary body, because, of course, that uh, there, there were meteorites that were uh, discovered and analyzed on the moon, on the surface of the moon, but uh, rather on another planet. Um, and then fast forward a couple years later, in 2007, we get to uh, the first uh, real challenges that um, uh, Opportunity faced with its, uh, with its power system. Rich, you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So towards the end of June in 2007, a series of dust storms began clouding the Martian atmosphere with dust. We saw this. Um, there was a still from the video where you saw gradients of how dark it got. And if you recall that shot from the video. <clears throat> and the storms intensified. And, and by July 20th, both opportunity and spirit were facing the real possibility of systems failure due to the lack of power um nasa released a statement to the press at that time saying we're rooting for our rovers to survive these storms but they were never designed for conditions this intense and that that goes to show how you know the nasa scientists thought oh, oh wow this, this is pretty bad we, we're gonna have to say something here because we genuinely don't think we're gonna make it also, um, not long after that, it, when those uh, dust storms had passed, that's actually where the uh, first uh, opportunity <laughs> uh, of uh, dust devils cleaning off the uh, solar panels uh, started to happen, and um, where the uh, uh, NASA team really started to gain the confidence that they might actually be able to extend the missions uh, that the uh, rovers, uh, especially Opportunity in this case, might be able to actually survive a Martian winter and continue on. And lo and behold, uh, they both did for Spirit uh, about five years, for Opportunity uh, close to 15 years. Um, thanks to uh, the Martian wind uh, continuing to dust off the solar panels a little bit here and there. So that's really cool. Yeah. Um, Fast forward about three years, uh, by March 24th, 2010, Opportunity had driven more than double the distance of its sister rover, Spirit, uh, clocking in about 20 kilometers or 12 miles. Two months later, Opportunity exceeded the record set by the Viking 1 lander for the longest continuous operation on the surface of Mars, six years and 116 days. Speaking of records, actually... Fast forward again another three years, and May 16, 2013, Opportunity passed the previous record for the furthest distance travelled by any NASA vehicle on another celestial body, which was 22.21 miles or 35.744 kilometres. And that was a record set by the Apollo Lunar 17... Sorry, Apollo 17 Lunar Roving Vehicle in December 1972. So this was a while ago. <clears throat> Absolutely. And then, on the way to Endeavour Crater in 2015, uh, they were passing by a, a valley, and they realized on the odometer that they had gone 
the length of a marathon. So, as they said in the video back there, they just named the valley Marathon Valley. So, that, that was kind of cool, actually. And, obviously, the length of a full marathon being 42.1 kilometers or 26.2 miles. And they accomplished this on Martian Sol 3968 with a drive, I think it was about 157 meters. Yep. And that was uh, along the valley, uh, the valley along the edge of Endeavor Crater. Speaking of Endeavor Crater, it is massive. Rich, how massive is Endeavor Crater? Well, I just found out today that apparently you can comfortably fit the entire of Washington, D.C. in the crater. That's pretty huge. <laughs> yeah. You want to take away the last one? Yep. Um, so the uh, Opportunity rover continued its uh, mission for uh, four more years until finally one more dust storm started to really seal its fate. And that was when it was reaching uh, the uh, westernmost edge of uh, the uh, Endeavor Crater. And actually, on February 13th, 2019, the total rover odometry for uh, Opportunity read 45 kilometer or 45.16 kilometers or 28.06 miles. And also on that day is when NASA officially declared its mission coming to a full end, when they were no longer able to reach it by any kind of radio uh, wake, uh, wake signals, and it was no longer... Uh, sending any pings back to either the orbiters uh, around uh, uh, orbiting Mars or uh, back to Earth. And that's where uh, KPCC science reporter uh, Jacob Margolis uh, poetically summed it up that uh, my battery is low and it's getting dark. So rest in peace opportunity. The world fell in love with you. The world's heart broke. Mine did uh, uh, as well when I... Uh, it was finally declared in 2019, early 2019, that uh, it had reached the end of its mission and uh, finally fully shut down. Yeah, but man, it went for a long time, considering, remember, it was only supposed to be a 90-day mission. <laughs> 90 days, and it went for almost 15 years. Yeah. Amazing. And that's about all the time we have on this week's episode of Becoming Multiplanetary. I've been Rich LB, one of your co-hosts for Becoming Multiplanetary. And I've been Kage, also one of the co-hosts. If you enjoyed the content that you've been uh, watching or listening to, uh, definitely make sure to uh, like, share, and subscribe. Um, and you can check out the other uh, videos and uh, podcasts that we've done in this Rover Mega Series. We started with the Curiosity Rover. and I'm sorry, started with the Perseverance Rover uh, and then talked about Curiosity, then uh, Spirit, now Opportunity. And we will be closing this mega series with a uh, discussion about Sojourner and uh, the Pathfinder mission, and that'll that'll wrap everything up there. Um, this is not only the only show on the Total Space Network. Uh, Becoming Multiplanetary is one of three shows. We also have Deep Dive with Miko and the Space Update with Ryan. Uh, so definitely check us out on TotalSpace.net. It's our website where you can find all of our content and links to all of our social media. Uh, which, by the way, you can find us on uh, YouTube at Total Space and on Twitter at Total Space Net. And to wrap this up, uh, Rich, would you like to do what you uh, always like to do? 
As always, at the end of each episode, we like to take a moment to thank our Patreons, uh, whose help is truly appreciated. The funds that we receive through Patreon is always reinvested back into Total Space, and we use it to bring you even better shows, like improve the quality, uh, make, you know... For instance, one of the things we did is we got a system for our website, which distributes our podcasts everywhere, and it it's a really great system, and it works really well. Um, so yeah, we're really, really grateful for your support. Uh, lately, we've even managed to get Adobe licenses for video editing as well, so your support really does truly help us. Thank you so much. And our Patreons are Adrian Moiser, Anthony Mann, Fremrick, Gio Pagliari, Howard Walker, Dishman and Sebastian from To The Future, Angry Astronaut, Marco, Sammy Oscuro, also known as Stinger Stinger NSW, Susie R, Warhawk, and What About It. Thank you all so much. Your, Your donations are very, very much appreciated by the whole team. And if you'd like to also join us uh, in our Discord, um, you can gain access by becoming a patron uh, at patreon.com slash total space. And with that, then um, thank you for joining us. Make sure to join us for the final of this series where we talk about Sojourner and Pathfinder. And until then, see you next time.